Welcome to the Film Coterie. I'm Roger. I'm Adam. And this is episode number 97. It's that time of year, Adam. Screener season. <laughs> yes, it is. So if you're in this business, uh, when we say screener season, we're generally talking about the time period that's from Thanksgiving till the end of the year. Yes. Um, this is the time of year that all the regional critics associations hold their best of meetings and they vote to, to nominate and award the films that they think are the best of the year. So we get bombarded with physical screeners, digital screeners, screening sessions in theaters. Yep. Uh, there's something to do every night. We're never bored. That, that's I'll put for that sure. Out there. And you know, it's it's where I see about half of the films that I catalog for the whole year. I see in this two month period, you know, and so I'll be watching probably one to two films a night all the way up until we do our top ten of the year award show. You know, come first week of January, end of December, whenever we do it. So, and I think the unique thing about this time of year because the movies we get. Our movies that the studios are backing. They're they're better movies. These are the movies they think are award contenders. So at your worst, you're gonna see something you might give three out of five stars. Right. Yeah. You know, you're not seeing any duds. I right. mean, you can legitimately go from great film to great film to great <laughs> film. That yeah. happens. I mean, oh, there yeah. can be some very magical weekends and evenings where you're just seeing really incredible stuff, but there's there's really no duds. Like I said, it, it's kind of impressive what you can see in this short time window. Yeah, that's for sure. And I'm really enjoying it. And I've seen some, we, we, we've already been talking and I've seen some really good films already. And uh, uh, I think we're going to see a couple back to back episodes of our podcast covering four, at least films that I think are worth talking about. Sure. You know, and that that's, of course, going to bring us to today's episode. And we're going to talk about a film, however many years, a dozen, 13, 14 13 years. 13 years. Avatar yeah. came out in 2009. Yep. And then here we are in 2022, and we have the sequel. Avatar, The Way of Water, or just Avatar 2, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, why are we 13 years between the original Avatar, which was a huge financial success, and Avatar, The Way of Water? Uh, that answer is James Cameron. <laughs> he wanted to perfect technology that did not exist. Right. Uh, we'll talk about it during our review, but briefly, he wanted to be able to shoot motion capture underwater, which has not been done. The problem was that if you've seen a mocap suit, they're like like a wetsuit. They have balls for reference points on them. Right. And the problem is when you film underwater, you have all these glassy layers between you and the model, and it throws the sensors off. They really can't read the underwater motion. So just like he has before, he's invented new technology or co-developed new technology <laughs> that could capture these amazing performances right. underwater with the facial expressions and everything. Again, he's pushing cinema forward with what he does. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a second film we're going to talk about, uh, The Fablemans, and that is the somewhat quasi-autobiographical story of Steven Spielberg. Correct. So, so anyway, I would think we ought to jump right into Avatar, The Way of Water. The people have waited long enough. They've waited long enough, and it's been a few weeks for our podcast, so it's, true. Great, it's great to get back at it, Adam. So let's listen in to just a little bit of Avatar, and then we'll give you our thoughts. You are listening to The Film Coterie. So what does her heartbeat sound like? Mighty. 
we cannot let you bring your war here. Outcast. That's all they see. I see you. The way of water connects all things. Before your birth. And after your death. This is our home! I need you with me. And I need you to be strong. Strongheart. Alright, we are back, and now it's time to dive in, literally, to Avatar <laughs> The Way of Water, the I sequel. Love it. To the 2009 mega hit. I don't even think mega hit does it justice. Uh, yeah, however many billion dollars, two billion or something, it made yeah. it crazy numbers. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready for the conversation. I'm ready for people to experience it, to talk about was it worth the wait. Um, so let's talk, let's back up here for just a second, Adam. So when the original Avatar came out, people thought James Cameron was crazy. Blue creatures that, you know, and all this technology and aliens and sci-fi and fantasy elements all coming together. And it was a massive hit. I mean, $2 billion or something. And people went over and over and over to see it. Just a huge, huge hit, right? And then, like we said, nothing for 13 years. Now, I can tell you this. People in, in, in my friend circle that are just everyday Joes that don't go to the movies that often are crazy nuts about Avatar 2. Have already bought tickets. Like, right. like my son and daughter and their circle of friends, like eight of them, all have their tickets to go see Avatar. Cause, and they're all excited. They all loved the original. They were all young kids when they right. saw it. You and now know. they're adults. And now been, they're adults. It's and, been 13 years. Yeah, and, and it's like they're, they're gung-ho. They cannot wait to see it. So I'm expecting this movie to go huge again. It should. I mean, all signs are pointing to it being a mega hit, and everything got out of its way. There's nothing coming out for weeks because, you know, everyone's scared of the box office run that Avatar 2 is going to do. You know, it's funny to think back to the original release because people doubted it. They always say, you've heard this, don't bet against James Cameron because his track record establishes that he, he can nail it every time. The two things that they they didn't think might work is they didn't know that these mocap performances would be that realistic. Everyone thought this can be like watching a cartoon. There'd be some live action, and then it's just going to feel like a cartoon. So what he delivered on the first one was the most sophisticated mocap performances and expressive characters we've ever seen is for being CG characters. You know, you quickly buy into it. You don't doubt it. You just accept that the performances were that good. And then at the time, he pushed 3D. Right, yeah. And then we had to suffer through a decade of oh, bad 3D movies. Oh, terrible. He was the only one that could really do it justice. Right, uh, you're right. And then 3D has died off. Yeah. Um, we don't really see those kind of screenings anymore. So now we're back 13 years later. He's pushing the envelope again. He waited on new technology like I discussed before. This this movie has a lot of underwater scenes. He wanted to capture that in a way that was realistic. The CG's better than ever. And we're back to 3D again, but this time it's HFR 3D. Oh my gosh. And it is, that is a game changer. And what HFR means is high frame rate. Normally when you see a film, it's in 24 frames per second. 
that's what gives it the cinematic look. Your TV is a higher frame rate when you're watching sports. That's why sports right. look different than movies. Yep. High frame rate movies film at 48 frames per second. And what's interesting, and I didn't realize this when we were seeing it, because we I talked to the rep after the film. You were there. I wanted to yeah. know if we were seeing the HFR version. So as I understand it, all the 3D screenings are HFR, but only in certain scenes. So like when IMAX movie will switch to the big IMAX moments. Right, yeah. This film, whether you realize it or not, switches to HFR for underwater, flying, and action scenes. <laughs> the rest of the time, it's 24. Isn't that incredible? Right. I mean, that's just incredible. So, 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 you know, uh, without getting into spoiler territory, and I don't know if you could even spoil this film because people said, well, is it any good? What's the story like? And all that kind of stuff. And I say to them, if you loved the first movie, you're going to get a whole lot more of the same, just grown up a little bit, you know, right. just in a little bit different dimension kind of deal. But it's the same avatar. It's the same world. It's, it's characters are coming back. Characters have gotten older, but those same family dynamic themes and one universal world that's all interconnected and, you know, big, big industrial uh, influence, you know, all those things are still there. Uh, you know, Earth, we are the bad guys coming to invade that planet. You know, that's all those all those themes are there. The story's OK to good, you know, I would say. But, you know without giving anything away visually it is a spectacle it is it is inc gorgeous it's incredible it's visually striking um i i can hands down say that i have never seen something as visually incredible as i've seen with this movie i mean it literally just blows you out of the it makes the first one look like one of the first color films shot in whatever technicolor vista color back in the 50s and 60s Compared to this film. Yeah. And the words I used to my friends and family that were asking me, I said, this is unrivaled spectacle at this point. If you're going to see it, you know, I have to say, take advantage of it. See it in 3D at a good theater, your best theater in town. You know yep. which one that is wherever you live. Yep. It's worth waiting to get into that screening um, because the 3D, if it's projected correctly, is really good. It makes me forget the 10 years of bad 3D that we had to suffer for because James Cameron understands it. Yes, there's still a few gimmicky shots with a spear. Yeah, sure. Arrow, yeah. I mean, they're just going to be there. The depth of field and those effects in the air underwater are incredible. Yeah. You literally, there were, I mean, there were times that I thought I was watching a National Geographic special mm -hmm. shot in super high definition. It's so realistic looking. The sea creatures are so realistic looking. You, you, I just forgot. I forgot that I wasn't on, that th none of this is real. You know, you, you would never think this movie was shot in a giant warehouse somewhere, you know? And I will say this too. When you get your tickets, make sure you're far enough back. Don't get yes. into a screen where you're in the forward part of this. Because on a big screen, for this 3D to really work, you have to see the entire picture in one field of view. Yes. You don't want to be turning your head. You no. got to be kind of even with it. So don't just jump into a screening in the first three or four rows to get in. I would wait until you have a seat, if you're seeing it in 3D, that you're far enough back that you can take it in in kind of one visual. So what are, what are some things, uh, you know, we're both going to be positive on it. We're yeah, both, we're, we're both positive on it. We're this both going to sure. tell you, spend the money, go see it. You know, my daughter kept saying, 
do we really need to see it in 3D? And I'm like, yes, you do. And so you they don't all, have the same experience yeah, at home. You the, just can't have this experience anywhere other than theater. You can't have this experience except for the theater. We were lucky enough to get into a Dolby Atmos theater. So we got the sound, that, that 3D sound, as well as we did the visual, which just made it... The sound in this film is incredible. It's so good. And if I had to guess, we were also seeing probably laser projection. You want it bright. Yeah. Um, because you're wearing these glasses, it's going to darken it, so you yeah. want to make sure you have good projection, too. Yeah, so so our, our visual experience is great. What about just some notes? Do you have any notes for the film itself, Adam? So the film is very much like the first one. We get some world building, not as much world building as the first one, because that first film does a lot of the heavy lifting of why the humans are there, how the Avatar program works. The world building we get in this one is the new Navi culture that we experience with the Water Tribe. Right. So there's a lot of notes that are the same, but that's what Cameron does. He doesn't want to surprise you with an unexpected story. I mean, if you look over his filmography, this is a guy that does not have the color gray in his palette. No. Everything's black and white. There's no nuanced characters. <laughs> All the archetypes and tropes you want are there. This is familiar and I'll say comfortable storytelling. You know, he's, he doesn't want to dive into nuance. This is a story of colonizers coming an insurgency of the local natives fighting back. So it's very similar to the first movie. Um, it, it's certainly a sequel. You can't go into this and not have seen the first movie. You know, it's mandatory viewing, yeah, I, I would no, say. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have the opportunity, watch the original Avatar before you go see this. But in a lot of ways, you can see some growth to it. Um, I think Sam Worthington is a much better actor now in this film than he was in the first movie. I watched him pretty close in time. And that was a huge burden on his shoulders because if you remember, Cameron kind of picked him out of nowhere to be the lead of this huge yeah. franchise. Yeah. Then everyone else grabbed him and threw him in their stuff. And he was still learning to be an actor. Um, he's evolved a lot. I think he's he's way better in this as Jake Sully than he was in the first movie. Um, I was kind of surprised. Neytiri takes kind of a back seat here, but it's hard to fit her in with everything going on because the important new characters we spend a lot of time with, and that's important, is their children. Right. The growth that Jake and Notiri have is they're now a family. They have yeah. children of their own and They're two parents. adopted children. Yeah, absolutely. So those characters have changed that way, and we have to get to know these teenagers who I think Cameron did a good job of making them they're all different characters with their own desires and, yes. and motivations. And I'll say this. If the rumor is true that he, in his mind he has three or four more films lined up, I now can see why. Because I'm excited to go on a journey. I want to see the baton pass to these kids. And these kids lead this story forward over the next couple. You know, I think we're still going to get a crossover film again with the, with the sequel. But he has to be thinking at some point, I'm going to turn these kids loose and really lean on them for the, the last few films. Yeah, it could become a generational tale. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what he's done, um, he didn't start shooting two until he'd written five. So two through five were all written. He brought on the same writers. And, and Cameron, this is just how he works. He brought in all these writers <laughs> to help him. He didn't tell them what movie they were working on because he said, we worked out all five together because so I didn't want them focused on their one movie. I wanted them invested in the whole story. Yeah. So until so, they, they yeah. broke the story for all five is then when he assigned out the eventual titles that he would work with them on. So two and three have been shot completely. They're coming. Disney's contractually obligated to release them. Right. He shot parts of four. Okay. While he had some of the actors, you know, not yeah. knowing what their future yeah. availability would be. 
So we're definitely getting two and three. And then the performance of two is going to determine whether Disney wants to greenlight four and five because the budget on this where he got us so far was $500 million. Oh, my word. <laughs> so it's a huge now, undertaking. Now, he did get two films out of that as far as the shooting for two films. Yes, and, and part of a third. Right. So so that's that's a little bit okay, but yeah. But if they don't do well at the box office, we won't get the We're going to end on three. And maybe yeah. he's fine. He's realized there is a natural conclusion there. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the box office will determine that. It seems like the box office is going to be strong. We just have to see if it has the legs to go. Yeah. One of the elements that I really liked about this film was the exploration of culture and how there's still some residual friction between the cultures. And what I mean by that is that, you know, Jake Sully is... Now a Navi, you know, he, he, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the first Avatar, yeah. he's reborn as an actual Navi. But he's not even fully, there's still some slight hesitancy within his own tribe because, you know, he has five fingers instead of four. And when, when they have to meet the water tribe, you get some of that tension again because, the, you know, look, the first response is like, look, they've got demon blood or these are not real Navi. So I like that they continued to explore. This is kind of a, even even as a family unit, they are kind of ragtag and still a little bit on the margins and outside, you know. So I, I like some of that tension that we'll see we'll see in the story. I do have to hope that the third one isn't going to be the way of fire. And then we get introduced to a fire tribe that I have to learn <laughs> because I will groan at that point if that's the way he's going. And, and this movie has an ending. I don't want to spoil it. And there's no real cliffhanger. Right. You know, we, we sit here today. We have no more knowledge than you do of where this is going for no, the third one. No. So maybe that's good, you know. Yeah. So. And it's, he's making these all somewhat self-contained, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This didn't just feel like half a movie like some sequels do. This this was a full story, full experience. Yeah. I didn't feel cheated like, well, this was just the middle part and they're just making us wait for the third. It, it's satisfying um in that way and it's you're going to walk out of this a little exhausted, not in a bad way. But the visuals are overwhelming and and you're going to deal with a battle at the end that's an hour long. And 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 he doesn't let the foot off the gas. No. It is literally the last hour is breakneck pace, action adventure, for sure. And it's that similar pacing to the first movie as yeah. well. Yeah, it's all exploration, introduction of characters, and then yeah. conflict for the remainder of the film. Yeah. Um, one of the performances I want to spotlight, because I think it was really good, was Sigourney Weaver. She was hesitant to come into this because, as you, you've seen the first one, her character, I'm going to say dies in quotes because she was uploaded or downloaded into the Iowa tree and there's sort of a resurrection. We don't understand it. The film is, is going to give you the answers. Maybe, maybe not, but she's playing a teenager in this film. And she was a little hesitant to come in because as she filmed this, she was with the other 13 and 14 year olds. All the actors for the kids were age appropriate. And then you have Sigourney Weaver in her sixties playing a teenager. Right. But that's the power of mocap is oh, that yeah. age doesn't matter. Doesn't. Um, she could still be a wide-eyed teenager. And James Cameron was very confident in her. He said, Sigourney, you're a teenager at heart. If anyone can do this, it's you. And she fit right into the kids. The kids accepted her. And I I, I think she's got one of the standout performances of the film. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. Um, so overall, great film. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah. 
go see Avatar The Way of Water. It, it, it's going to be worth your time and your money to go see it. It's a theme park ride. Yeah. I think that's the expectation you go into. This isn't going to movie isn't going to be a movie you mine for treasure. He's not bearing any subtext anywhere. This is just that experience which you can only get at the yeah. theater. And we had this one other time this year with Top Gun Maverick. These are movie movies yes. for, the, for the masses, very populist entertainment. Get your butts in the seats, get the popcorn, get the soda, and just lose yourself for two, three hours in this experience. Absolutely. All right, that's going to wrap it up for Avatar, The Way of Water. When we come back, we're going to get into The Fablemans. You are listening to The Film Coterie. I want you to make a camping trip movie. You can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that'd be great. Get to it tomorrow, okay? Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. <laughs> Escape to nowhere. We're shooting all weekend. Shooting Dad, next weekend. We got like 40 guys coming to be in the movie. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trips up on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Don't Please. be selfish. She just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to, just to... died. It's, it's not, how's that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. All right, and we're back. And that was a little listen in on The Fablemans. So, Adam, this film comes to us. It is, it's not even apologetically kind of autobiographical story of Steven Spielberg's life in some areas, you know? And so it's for film. This is a film about his life growing up, falling in love with the art of film, making films with his Boy Scout troop. You know, all the stories we've heard. And we, I've, I've actually even seen some of those early 8mm films that he shot through certain Disney specials and different things that we've seen. Uh, we're getting all that in his story. But I'm not quite sure how I feel about the Fablemans as a whole. And so what are your thoughts? What else can we tell our listening audience? Why should they jump into the Fablemans and maybe check it out? Sure. And this one was just a blip in theaters. It is already available for rent on VOD. It'll be available for purchase probably soon. So you can see it at home. I don't think it's in a lot of screens yet. It, it didn't make much of a splash, but we're in a weird COVID era still three years in where art house films aren't getting the seats sold that they used to. So there's been a scramble. Theaters don't have movies as long as they used to, so this one's already home. So The Fablemans is, I'd say, 90% accurate to Spielberg's life, if you've never read anything. He had a childhood where he grew up where a dad that was invested in science, a mom that was invested in art, and there was sort of a tug-of-war for him. Um, he knew at an early age that he loved film. Um, there's a great moment where he saw a train crash, you know, as a little boy in a theater, his first theatrical experience, and he yeah. became completely obsessed with it oh, to the yeah. point where he had to do it. He had to get a camera and a model train set and figure out, you know, how they did this. And I, I totally believe Spielberg was yeah. that child. Um, and then it goes through his life and it's, it's this battle between here's what I love. Here's what I want to do. Here's what my parents expect from me. And then also the, the true-to-life family drama that Spielberg went through as a child. Um, 
He had difficulties with his mother. She had some mental health issues. His dad was trying to support the family and wanted wanted the young Stephen to go into a field where he could support his yeah. own family and himself. And the importance that art is great, but it doesn't put food on the table. So you get this sort of slice of life as he moves around the country. They move from New Jersey to Arizona. And it's, like I said, it, this wouldn't be a movie that, you wouldn't make this movie about any character. This is definitely a true-to-life story. And it's it's entertaining, it's heartbreaking, and it's the most personal work we've seen from Spielberg as a director. He's not one to fully divest into what he wants to do. I mean, there's always been hints of stuff. There's been an absentee father in a lot of his films. Right. Um, the opening to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, for instance, with the boys, the Boy Scouts in the desert, was all Spielberg wanting yeah. to recreate what he did in his childhood with the train sequence and everything else. So it's neat to see the background to the man that's given us all these amazing films. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I, I I guess I'm mixed on the film. I, I I there's so much to love about this film. Uh, the performances are great. It captures the the late fifties, sixties. You know, it it captures that time period. Uh, there's so many iconic things. You know, when when Spielberg saw you know the, the greatest show on earth with the train wreck, and then he saw. You know, the man who shot Liberty Valance and it inspired him to make Westerns and, you know, hints for of uh, just just all this great classic Hollywood nostalgia that I love. And there's a heartstring story here as well, too. You know, um, I just I, I wrestle with, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know why I wrestle with this film. Something in this film is like sits a little bit sideways with me. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if it's like, well, you know, and Steven Spielberg has had a great impact on film. I, sure. I love his films, you know, but it's like the guy made it, made his own autobiography and he did it. If this would have been a book, I think it, it, great, fine. I'd love to read this autobiograph uh, autobiography, you know, but he made a film about his life and got away with it. And it's really good. And I, I guess that's okay in today's culture. I don't know. Well, you know? Um, I want to give credit here because I didn't come up with this. This is me reading. A, there's a critic, Alan Cerny, um, who loves Spielberg. Um, his most treasured thing is a letter he got from Spielberg for one of his reviews, just thanking him for the review. And he's always written a lot about Spielberg's life. You can see his influences through his films. What he wrote about, and I think is a good take on this film, is that Spielberg as a child had to understand this train wreck. He was obsessed with it, and he had to make a film to understand it. If you know anything about Spielberg's later in life, he reconnected with his dad when he was in his 50s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that changed things for him because before there was some hurt, there were some feelings of abandonment. Um, you did see an absentee father in some of the films like Indiana Jones and E.T. and all this. Oh, yeah. And then he got a different perspective from meeting with his dad. Late in life changed on how he viewed things. So just like a little boy making a film to understand the train crash, he's now made this film about his life to understand his parents. Yeah. There's love for both of them. He's not demonizing either parent no, in this no, film. No, not at all. And as an adult with his own family, I think he has a different understanding of the family relationships and what happened yeah. than he did as a boy and where those feelings of hurt came from. And I think one of the things he captures so well is the pain that is experienced in family. Mm -hmm. There's real pain at times, you know, 
emotional pain that, and that, that, that leaves marks on us and affects us in certain ways. And we all go through it. We've all had it. We've all experienced it. And he shows for all his success and all of the accolades and the boy wonder that he was and part of the new Hollywood generation. I mean, all the just, and he's literally exceeded all the expectations, right? He still had a lot, just, there was just a lot of pain, some trauma in his, in his life and, and hurt, you know, because, you know, the two people he loved the most in the world, his parents split and divorced at a, at a, at a, when he was a teenager, you know? And so that part I, I applaud and I, and I like, I just don't, this is one of the most perplexing films. I, I should love this film and me well, doing backflips, but I can't put my finger on what, what kind of sat a little sideways with me about this and film. And I, I think it may just be, I've had more distance from the film. I saw it a while ago. You just saw this last night. Yes. I mean, I literally just saw it last night. So I think you might still be working out some of your feelings towards it. Um, and, can, and people that, are yeah. going to have a mixed reaction yeah. to this. This is not your typical Spielberg film by any stretch. No. But I think you got two standout performances here with the parents, with both Paul Dano and Michelle Williams. I, I think they're delivering great performances. Great. Yeah. And again, Spielberg is walking a line here where I don't think he wants you to feel a certain way about either parent. They have nuance. They have depth. We were just talking about this with Cameron. This is all painted in gray. And that I think you have to look at this film at two eras, what he experienced as a boy and what he experiences now looking back on the decisions and the way his parents acted, having a, a lifetime of change to understand them then. And you, and you understood the parents. You got why. You know, he's this science guy that's just a genius, and he had... He's driven. What makes him a genius is he's driven to do that work, but he still loves his family. But his first love is science. Mm -hmm. And then you've got her who, you know, she's she loves her family, loves her husband, but her art, she's got to, she, she's a bird that has to fly, you know. And so, in one sense, she, the family is always going to be second a little bit, you know. Um, or she's always maybe felt like a caged bird right. that wanted to fly, you know? Yep, she had to raise the children and, and, and give up her dream. And there's a great scene where she goes and buys a monkey because she just needs levity and, and fun in the house, right? That's a true story. Most of the, I mean, like I said, 90% of this is, and, is true. And, and what's ironic, she can't build the cage. She can't put the cage together, you know? So what is that saying? Here she is. That's mm -hmm. her saying... I can't buy this and then cage it kind of deal. Well, and she know? was looking for happiness too, right? She yeah. was depressed and said the monkey made her happy. Yeah. The other thing about this film, there's a scene, and this isn't really spoiling anything, but there's a scene where he confronts a bully or the bully confronts him after seeing a movie that he made. Yeah. And I don't know that there's a better scene in any movie this year than that confrontation between this bully realizing how Spielberg saw yeah. him and created this movie around him. Yeah. It's just such an incredible scene that, like I said, I, that's a highlight for the year, well, for sure. Yeah, and it's not given anything. I mean, this isn't a spoiler-free episode, but it's like he saw that that the guy that was the bully, it's just obvious he's the star of the high school. Yep. And if you're going to shoot a film, it, he makes a comment, I don't know why I did it, but the it's like the camera found you. You, you know, you, you the camera just... You had to shoot him, you know. And the bully doesn't understand it either. He's almost brought to tears, like, why did you, I can't live up to that. Why did you make me that? Yeah. I'm not the hero. Yeah. 
it's 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 a great scene. I absolutely. So I, I guess I like the Fablemans, and I would totally recommend it as a it's a great. It, but it's not a film you need to watch in a theater, you no. know. And nope. it's not even in the theater anymore, you know. It so. was in and out, unexpl- inexplicably quick. I mean, yeah, it, it's a hard movie to sell. The trailer can't really sell the premise. They didn't. It's not called the Spielbergs. People don't really maybe realize that it's a true story. Yeah. So. So anyway, so yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for our podcast this this time, Adam. Any closing thoughts? Anything with with either Avatar or, or the Fablemans? Uh, it's funny we we picked movies from Spielberg and Cameron, both titans in the industry and they couldn't be more different. Uh, absolutely. So I think this was a good selection for this episode because with Avatar we're going to tell you this is a movie for everybody populist entertainment go right. see it in the theater. And with Fablemans we're telling you it's fine at home. It's a more nuanced indie artistic film that you may or may not connect with. I yeah. I think it's not a surprise that people are going to walk out of this with mixed emotions and yeah. You know, it's going to drive people to look more into it and look, maybe read some more about and Spielberg. You know what? Seth Rogen is in this film and he's great. Yep. The guy, he's a he's great in the film. He's and and he's not playing Seth Rogen. But he's just he's just a funny, happy go. But he doesn't go he doesn't Jim Carrey it up or no. go over the top or he you know, he's just absolutely great in this film. I wanted to highlight him. I Judd Hirsch I loved as as the Jewish grandpa that's going to come in, but he's still the artist. I mean, there's there's just so many great beats to this film. I and think the longer I sit with it, I'm just going to be really appreciative I, of it. Yeah, I think you're going to have a complex reaction to it because again, I think Spielberg went out of his way to not make you feel a certain way about the characters. Yeah, he wanted them to be their own. That yes. you understand there's nuance and, and depth there. There wasn't a scene that was designed to make us feel one way about his mom or his dad. No, it's it's here they are as people you, you, you're not you you love them both and you realize they're both flawed individuals he's not trying to manipulate your emotions which i think was yeah. a very good way to and approach and i agree this film. michelle williams and paul dano fantastic i mean yeah. it is really just the more i talk about it I, i'm liking the film <laughs> well it, it's a complex film i think you have to sit with it oh, for a while goodness anyway well that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the film coterie adam if somebody is crazy enough to listen to this for the first time, <laughs> how else can they get other episodes or find us out there on the interwebs? Well, thankfully, we have a unique name. We are the only Film Coterie. So if you search that, you'll find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on all the major podcast uh, services. So yep. just search that Film Coterie or at Film Coterie. Yeah, and you can search by our titles. There's... Five years, six years of films now that we've covered. So And coming up, we do our end of the year list. Yes. That's why we're scrambling to get through these screeners. And we always want to hear what you like, what you've loved. So, I mean, feel free to jump into the comments and, and tell us what you thought of these films. And we are going to bust episode 100 in 2023 early. Right in January will be our 100th episode. So And it might be with some January releases, which are always interesting. So, <laughs> All right, my friend, that's going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to the Film Coterie. We'll see you next time. 